Welcome to the Thinking Leader Podcast, sponsored by Red Team Thinking. Bad leaders react, good leaders plan, and great leaders think. Each week, we bring you new ideas and insights from business leaders, military leaders, and thought leaders. Ideas and insights that will help you think more deeply and lead more effectively, so that you can better navigate your complex world. Here again are your hosts, best-selling business author and top-rated leadership speaker Bryce Hoffman, and former Royal Air Force Wing Commander and Business Agility Coach Marcus Dimbleby. Hey, it's Marcus. We've got a treat for you this week. We're going to be sharing the best of our guests. Yes, our last five guests. We've got Christian Johansson, Ellie Cloak, Jason Coyle, Jose Carella, and Mick Paisley. And we're going to be sharing with you five of our favorite topics from each of those guests. So listen in, leave your comments below, look forward to hearing from you, and we can't wait to see you again next week. Bye-bye. I'd like to welcome to the show today, Christian Johansson, the CEO of Media Brands Emea. Christian, hey, fabulous to have you. Christian, welcome. Us. Ellie, welcome to the show. Fabulous to have you here. Jason, welcome to the show. Thank you, Bryce. Glad to be here. And it is fantastic to have you with us today, Mick. It sure is, Mick. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Looking forward to the chat. There is no doubt that a more diverse workforce um, is, is a business requirement these days in terms of bringing new theories, new thinking um, to the table, again, in service of our clients. That's, that's what this is about. To solve their problems. I mean, it's, it's service and solutions. And um, for me, the the applied critical thinking, as we as, as we refer to it, yeah, it's the great leveler, really, because it, in its in its procedure and its process, because it um, it seeks to give everyone a voice, and and it allows for alternate and different opinions to be aired. And so that the, you know, really the most powerful voice isn't the most powerful. And that, that to me is central to the, the diversity, equity and inclusion agenda we have. We have to practice it. Uh, and it has to be absorbed into the organization. And these tools inherently have that built into their ethos. Yes. And I think that's, uh, that's, that's been, it's been a surprising, massive ancillary benefit. Absolutely, because it, it wasn't something we thought about initially. We, you know, this 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 bubbled up as a as an, a real insight in, wow, th- this is actually, you know, I I'm, I call it the great leveler because it allows everything to come up and to ensure that you're you're actually making sound decisions and not going down rabbit holes right before right. all of the 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 material or the facts have been added. Well, the best ideas don't matter if nobody ever hears them, right? That's right. You can have the, oh, the best idea in the world, but if nobody ever gets a chance yeah. to hear it, then yeah. what good so is true. it to you? I think what's what's important is, you know, the diversity and equity and inclusion thing is critically important for its own sake, but it's in, important because it's about improvement. And so for me, you know, a critical aspect of, uh, developing an organization that, that progresses and, and isn't just 
a progressive organization is really where, uh, where, you know, the responsibility to challenge the prevailing view to get to something better finds its feet and it, it, it is most applicable. So f- for me, it's, you know, it, it again, it underscores the importance of diversity and inclusive thinking as a business requirement. Well, you know, I'll, I don't want to say which government, but we work with a government that, you know, we, we were doing some, some training not related to diversity and inclusion originally, but then we had some of their, their folks who are spearheading their diversity and inclusion effort who had been part of a program we'd done reach out to us. And Marcus could talk a little bit more about this, but to say, you know, Hey, you know, we've done a great job as an organization hiring people so that we look diverse, but those of us who, who have been hired are not being listened to. (laughs) It's still, it's still the the stale old white males who are, who are doing all the talking and, and making all the decisions. So what, what are we but window dressing? Right, Marcus? Exactly, exactly that. We went in there and we said, look, you've got all these great DE&I programs and we see them all over LinkedIn, all over HR policies. And they said they're just checkbox. They're just trying to hit quotas. And, and as you, you nailed it, Christina. If you don't do this for improvement, if you do it for the sake of checking a box to be seen to be diverse, then you're missing the point here. This is about improvement. It's about bringing people in and unleashing their capabilities. And we had a great client last week. He says, diversity without inclusion is delusion. <laughs> I love that. And I just thought that was brilliant. And this organization we were working with, this government organization, we were helping this team. And I was talking to these individuals who have been brought in. I said, so how do you feel? And they said, Marcus, we are pure tokenism. But we've seen these tools that allow us to now have that. And as you said, it's a great leveler. They now go into these meetings Nobody knows who's saying what. They can use the anonymity and their voices are getting heard. And they said, without these tools, we just sit there quiet. It's pointless speaking because, as Bryce said, those stale, pale old males just shut us down and it's not an accepted capability anymore. But, you know, it's something that has to change. We are seeing definite shifts in that direction and you're absolute pioneering on that front. It's fabulous. And one of the things I like, Christian, about what you've done in, in our work with you, when I've seen this particularly when we've worked with your country leaders, is that when you start to have a discussion, when you pose a question, you rapidly, in every case, you start to see that there are different parts of Europe that and, and the Middle East that have come up with solutions to the problem that the rest of the organization doesn't know about yet. And then they're able to share those insights. You know, we're doing a program where I don't remember what the specific problem was, but some of your, your, your folks in Scandinavia said, hey, we've been dealing with this issue in Scandinavia. Here's what we've figured out how to do. And then folks in Romania and Czech Republic and Poland were like, oh, that's exactly what we're dealing with. You know, that's what we need here. And I just love that exchange of ideas. It's so powerful and it's so important. Yeah, it really is. And it, for us, it's such a phenomenal vehicle for that exchange because it's, it's again, it's purposeful and meaningful. And for the most part, if almost in all cases, I would say, it's either focused on, on our clients or on our people. And, and, you know, sometimes, you know, it's that simple. Um, but you're right. I mean, one of the challenges as, as our organization grows 
is how are we, you know, to, to your point about distributive leadership and, and, and management is how are we getting information quickly into people's hands so that they can, again, make the right decisions and learn and have the benefit of learning from what others have already gone through. Right. Um, so I, I think, I think, you know, the champions program that we've started and that you guys are involved with <clears throat> is, is incredibly meaningful for our business. But for me, it's, it's, it, again, I keep using the word ancillary and I don't mean to, to downplay the benefit because it, but it's a benefit that we may not have seen initially is, is how motivated and passionate they are. So f- for us, this is also about doing what's right for our talent and our team and giving them an opportunity. You know, I mean, the champions are, are thinking about new business on one day and, and, you know, a better plan for humanitarian aid in, in Ukraine the next day. I love these it. are massive topics. You know, these are big things. One of them, obviously, incredibly so at the moment, but <clears throat> it, it, it makes for a very fruitful experience for them. And that, that means a lot to me, um, you know, beyond the, the business application of all of this. Without a doubt. And one of the things I've, I noticed working with your awesome people, you know, and, and we take for granted as primary language speakers of the English language itself is, you know, all these different people with all these different nationalities and backgrounds speaking in a second language. And, you know, after a few days, you think, wow, just to do what we're doing in a second language. It makes me feel stupid. It, it does. <laughs> it really totally. does. You know, Every I, time. <laughs> me and Elliot, yeah. Me and Elliot had a conversation like, are, are we realizing this? Next day, so we just need to stop a moment here. I just want to say something. You know, you're all doing this. You're all doing this in your second language. So if you're struggling with it, that's okay. By the way, it's hard normally. And just to tip your hat to that, but also then, the different cultural understandings, what these tools and techniques were allowing people to do is have that real clarity and alignment. So if there's a misunderstanding between two nations, using these techniques, they could talk it out, and before they step off, they were aligned. And that was such a big sort of reveal after two or three days that we move forward as one rather than individual countries. And that goes back to Bryce's point, sharing the learnings. So you start to get a cohesive unit. It doesn't matter where you're dispersed across the globe you are operating as a single force with, you know, your intent and vision going forward as a group, which is phenomenal. And then, of course, guys, you, and you'll know this, but because it's impacted you, you know, you'd be doing all these things in person normally, traveling here, there, and everywhere. So to, to have this these kinds of, of programs, whether it's retention programs, attraction programs, you know, the, the interesting and, and, and meaningful learning and development things that, we have underway at the moment. It's giving people again a sense of purpose and a sense of connection and meaning beyond just kind of a transactional relationship with their employer. And and that's, again, that is frankly my responsibility. And and I think the Champions Programme is a is a phenomenal representation. Well, this is why we always say that, you know, red team thinking is a set of tools and techniques, but it's also a mindset. And the mindset at the end of the day is what's most valuable. The tools and techniques are ways of developing that mindset, of training our brains so that we become 
critical thinkers to, so that we're countering group things, so that we're looking at things from the perspective of other people. And if you do that and you do it consistently, what you end up doing, as you've seen, is you start to change the culture of the organization. And at the end of the day, that's what this is really about. It's improving the culture of an organization, making an organization into a learning organization that can adapt and evolve to changing circumstances, that enables distributed decision-making and, and trust its people because it knows that its frontline leaders have these tools and techniques to make good decisions. And as you said, Christian, at the end of the day, it's the decisions that matter. And it's a decision-making culture that creates consistently good decisions. I want to go back to something that you said that I think is really important though, which is the, the idea of diversity and inclusion versus just diversity. And it seems to me that a lot of times people, organizations do a good job with one, but not the other. We've heard that from, from some of our clients we've worked with. And I know you've heard it from some of our clients that you've worked with. And I just wonder if you could talk a little bit about the difference between diversity and inclusion. Yeah. So for me, diversity is having all the boxes checked at a, at a meeting. So, you know, I've got one black one, one white one. I've got, you know, one of them, one of them. I've got one of them. I've got one of them, one of them. Tick, tick, tick. And so you, you meet that surface level target, don't you? To sort of say, yes, we're a diverse organization and you, you tick for your inherent, you know, diversity, things that people come with, people show up with. But actually what we do is we hire on acquired diversity. So that experience, that lived experience, that educational background, whatever it might be, that's what we hire for. But actually we only ever go down the uh, sort of inherent diversity route and tick those. And in doing so, we don't, we, we, we are so not inclusive. The, the, you know, inclusive, being inclusive is about making sure that people can belong and be free to speak up and bring everything that they have, their whole being to the party. And, you know, a lot of times we talk about belonging and what is belonging. Actually, it means different things to different people. But if you were to flip that and look at it the other way, which is what's it feel like to be excluded? Every single one of us has had that moment of being excluded. And think about the behaviours and the things that you do to get into the in-group. So whether you take yourself back to school and go, do you know what? I sort of laughed a bit harder or I took that extra risk just to get noticed and be sort of visible to the cool group or whatever it might be, or, or just the in group, because you want to get in because you are excluded. Well, that translates also into the workplace. Right. So people bring those behaviours because they just want to be recognised, acknowledged, included. And when you're excluded, we all do things. Just think back to your childhood of the, you know, oh, I'll go and do this and I'll take that extra risk or I'll I'll creep, you know, I'll suck up to that person over there to get myself in. I will, I'll bring them sweets or whatever it might be. That still plays out in, in the workplace in different ways, but it's still there. It's still the underlying childish behaviours and the childish traits. And actually... When you are excluded from something, it does take you back to your first experience of that. And you go through all that again and you it's just horrible, you know, being excluded or not being included and not being used for your experience and your thought. Because actually, it doesn't really matter, you know, 
we talk about diversity again and we talk about those bits that you know the the, the color the sort of um the sexuality the this the that the other but actually you know demographics generations is now a diversity that we need to be including in sure how we look at the workplace you know what there's four potentially five generations in the workplace how often do we only focus on one coming in to the exclusion of another so perhaps the people at the sort of the twilight years of their career well we'll sideline them because they're not going to be in the workplace any longer but they've got a huge amount to bring to any party and what they should be included as well so it's not only the the real sort of touch points of diversity that we have we need to think about the other things as well about the generational demographic that is now coming in to be a diverse you know being a diversity that needs to be brought in and how do we make sure we include everybody in that so for me inclusion is about how you get people to to share their experiences tell their story from their perspective just see somebody else's perspective just listen just ask them ask a question, listen. That's all you need to do, which are fundamentals of red team thinking. Absolutely. And I think that's such an important point that you've raised there, which is that it's not just the individual that suffers when diversity is just reduced to tokenism. It's the organization because diversity is such a powerful thing when it's leveraged, when it's tapped into. When those different experiences, those different perspectives, those different backgrounds are brought to bear on a problem, that's a powerful thing. And yet we've heard many times with, with organizations that we've worked with that people say, we have diversity in our team, but those of us who are on the team who are diverse are not listened to. It's still... Yeah the stale, pale males that are making the decisions. It's still those guys that are doing all of the talking in the meetings. And so I think we've all seen a real opportunity to use the red team thinking tools to actually pry open that door and let people with diverse perspectives be heard. We'll let everybody's voice be heard because the best idea can't win if nobody ever hears it. Absolutely. And I will remember this last week, we had a client and we were talking about this exact topic and he turned around and he said, diversity without inclusion is delusion. And I thought that that just summed up pretty much all the people we spoke to have got issues with this, where, you know, when you think about diversity, it goes to about what you were saying, Bryce, it's this art of thinking independently, but together. That's all we're trying to achieve, isn't it? It's bringing all these diverse backgrounds together, thinking on their own, but fusing that to some bigger thing, a bigger capability. And that's why we talk about diversity of thought. You know, that's what an organization needs to be successful to thrive in this VUCA world, this volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous world. But if you don't allow that, if you don't enable that, and you do it for all the wrong reasons, as you said, like if you're just ticking boxes, but not allowing inclusion. And I remember we, we spoke to a client last year and we got chatting with them. It's like, hey, so you're obviously part of this diverse workforce. How are you feeling? Um, you know, my heart went out. They just said, Marcus, I feel like I'm pure tokenism. And it goes back to what Ellie was feeling back in the Air Force those many years ago. It's just like, I'm here for the sake of being here. I'm not included. My voice isn't heard. And it's like, it's so, it's so rewarding to then be able to enable them with these tools and techniques to allow people to have that voice, often anonymously, because then you do see the power, but you don't know where it's come from which is that first stage. 
that's a conscious thing too, because when red teaming was developed in the U.S. military, one of the things that the the folks who were creating this new methodology were thinking about was how to encourage diversity of thought. And there's all sorts of kind of origin stories where some of the, the red team thinking tools and perspectives come from. And one of the most powerful ones was the story of the 11th attack helicopter regiment during the invasion of Iraq. And I was told this story by the colonel, one of the colonels who helped develop red teaming for the U.S. Army. And he said this story was really formative in his ideas on how to create this kind of culture of looking at things from different perspectives, hearing every voice and creating tools to enable that, which is what really red teaming is all about. So the story was he was he was the, the number two intelligence officer uh, for the coalition during the invasion of Iraq. And in the final days of the planning of the invasion, there was a, a session where they got together to talk about the plans for sending U.S. Apache helicopters deep into Iraq to attack the Republican Guard tank division before they could engage coalition forces. And in this meeting, there were a couple of generals, few colonels, few lieutenant colonels, and there was one woman who was just a lieutenant, and she was Army. She wasn't. She didn't have wings. There was a bunch of folks in there with 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 helicopter wings. There was some Air Force folks in there, and they had the sandboxes up, and they had little models of the Apache helicopters on sticks, and they were showing how cool it was going to be, how they were going to go in, and they were going to fly through all these valleys, and they were going to stay below the Iraqi radar, and they were going to end up, and they were going to pounce in mass on the Republican Guard tank division and annihilate it. And they predicted that they were going to have no losses because they were going to have wild weasels flying in front of them, uh, doing anti-radar missions and taking out all the Iraqi surface-to-air sites. And they were going to have complete surprise and they were just going to wipe the table clean. And they congratulated themselves. They said, this is going to be epic. And then she spoke up. Then she spoke up and she said, but what about small arms fire? And everybody looked at her with a look like, who the hell let you in the room? And the person who told me the story who was in the room said that the senior general basically said words to the effect of, are you a helicopter pilot? No, I didn't think so. Okay, why don't you go and sit in the corner young lady in color while the adults are speaking. But she persisted. She was like you, Ellie. She had the, the, the courage to embrace the role of being the outsider. And so she said, I just think we need to look at this. It's not something you've talked about. And they said, look, these Apaches are armored. They can't be taken out by small arms fire. She said, I understand that. But what about massed small arms fire? What about concentrated fire? What if instead of all these Iraqi soldiers, you know, firing wildly with their AK-47s into the sky, they coordinated their efforts and concentrated their fire on a single helicopter, one helicopter at a time. Couldn't that do something? And again, they said, look, 
did you not hear us the first time? We're the pilots. We're the, we're, we're the folks who know this. You're a lieutenant who has never been in combat, who's never flown a helicopter. We got this. And so she, she said, okay, fine. She sat down. So the invasion comes. The 11th Attack Helicopter Regiment takes off. It starts flying through the valleys at below radar level in the middle of the night, just as planned. And everyone's thinking it's going swimmingly. And then something starts to happen. The pilots start radioing back saying, hey, something weird's going on. Every time we go over an Iraqi town, all the lights go off for just a few seconds and then they turn on. And they're like, oh, okay, well, that's interesting. And then a few minutes later, pilots started radioing saying, hey, every one of these towns we're going through, there's guys on the rooftops with cell phones and they're pointing at us and, they're, and they seem to be talking into their cell phones. They're like, okay, well, that's no problem. We're taking out, you know, as the, as the wild weasels are up front, taking out all the surface terror missiles. You guys have nothing to worry about. Okay. They got to, to where the Republican guards were. They came through the, the, the pass and into the valley where they were lying in wait, where they were going to shoot them like fish in the barrel. And all of a sudden, the radios just went crazy at headquarters with pilots screaming, I'm blind. I'm blind. I can't see. I've got my night vision scopes taken out. My radar's out. I, you know, my engines hit. All of these these pilots just just coming on the comms with just these tales of how the, you know, even though not a single bullet was taking down a helicopter, the concentrated fire was blowing up their sensors, was taking out their, their cracking their windscreens. Some of them were getting hit in the engine, and in fact, we lost two. Apaches. They went. They were shot down by small arms fire. The 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 pilots were captured and paraded on television uh, by Saddam Hussein's forces. But even worse than that, the Eleventh Attack Helicopter Regiment destroyed not a single Iraqi tank, not one tank, and a huge percentage of the helicopters returned to base with so much damage that they were out for the rest of the war. About 40%, if I recall the number, of the Apaches were out of commission for the rest of the war because they had sustained so much damage from this small arms fire. And all of this could have been avoided if somebody had listened to this young lieutenant when she spoke up. But because they were looking at her as this young girl in the room who didn't know anything, They didn't pay attention to it. So one of the key principles of red team thinking is to create ways of allowing people to share their ideas anonymously so that you can consider the ideas independently of the source. Are you a red team thinker? Are you the person in the room who is always asking the tough questions? Do you see what others don't? Do you find yourself muttering, I told you so, too often after plans have gone awry because nobody listened to your good idea? If so, then you might be. Take our free assessment and find out. There's a link to it in the notes below. I can't wait to see how you score. Wow, and you're you're making decisions in some of the most high-stress 
environments imaginable. I mean, as, as most people probably are aware, though not as acutely as you, the nature of wildland fires has changed pretty drastically over the past decade. Has it not? I think it has. I mean, I, and when I, when I say that I, that I think it has, I, one of the main reasons that, that I arrive at that is because there's decisions that I made based on experience before that when I apply to a situation that I think is similar, uh, recognizing that it may or may not be similar, but that we, I, I think is similar enough that we should have success. In the last few years, we have a difficult time having success with that. And that has caused us to have to be like, wait a minute, this, your learning from experience is important. And uh, you know, we talk about slides in our slide tray, which probably need to think of a different uh, way to explain that since nowadays slide trays are a little hard to find. But I understand the metaphor, though, is that we have these things that we go to, we go back to constantly. But like in your in your line of work, the size of fires has changed. The frequency of fires has changed. The the pace of spread of fires have changed. And the and, and so not only do you have bigger fires, you have them happening simultaneously. So there's less resources. And that's got to make your job as as a commander who's in charge of marshalling all these resources, all these, all these firefighters, all these equipment from different agencies, federal, state, local, and all this stuff, just incredibly complex. You know, it's, it's, it's complex and, and, and it reminds me too. So there's, so a little bit about specifically what I, what I do when I'm on those fires is the, the system we use, it's a hierarchical system. It's, um it's very similar and was based on, uh, you know, military rank structure. And there's a, an incident commander who is basically hired by the different agencies that are being affected by the fire, the hurricane, the the shuttle recovery effort, whatever it is. And they, they delegate authority to managing that incident to the incident commander. And then there is an operation section chief or two or three of them. That is the role that I fill that it's our job to take that broad guidance, that leader's intent, if you will, from the, the host unit and distill it down into objectives and then execute on those objectives to achieve a successful outcome. So embedded within that is two processes that are distinct but complementary and that we, we used to try to just apply one set of rules to. So our planning process is like the military be like their MDMP, the military decision-making process in the U S military. And, right. and so that process is, it's necessarily a linear process. You have a finite amount of time to develop a plan that you're going to utilize the next day. And we develop a written plan every day. We have a bunch of people helping us do that, but we execute on that plan. And in there we have task purpose and end state for each one of the different portions of the fire that we call divisions and how they're going to execute in that part to, to accomplish their piece of the objective or, you know, the military probably subordinate lines of effort to achieve that, you know, the, the larger line of effort. And they were like, you know what? These fires are lasting longer. They're, they're lasting longer. The situations aren't as obvious. We need to become more strategic. You know, I think we could, we could say that we have a lot of people that definitely demonstrate tactical excellence. 
So if we're tactically sound, let's just scale that up. Let's scale up that same level of thinking, that same type of process that we use on the tactical level up to the strategic level, and we should be successful. So our what we call strategy is probably more akin to operational design. It's that that phase, that piece between the larger strategy of all the different fires that are being managed and the, the plan that's being executed. So we tried that first. I um, I have a, a very vivid memory of the first time that I decided to work on improving how we presented a strategy. Because we need buy-in from everybody, right? We need the people we're working for, if, if we're not going to go directly after something, we need for them to understand why we're not going to go directly after it. When maybe the best uh, course of action right now is no action. Um, and when the best course of action is just immediate action. And because there's risk with each one of those. And they, they while they may not assume the, you know, the physical risk or the risk of force, uh, they certainly assume the risk of mission. The first time I did this, and I had, I had a bunch of big heads in there and from all the way up to the region, so the, in the Southwest United States, and I presented my strategy and I had pulled on every bit of predictive science that we had available, modeling on the fires. The, I met the incident meteorologists look at the near-term fire behavior. We had long-term climatological looks, had it all together and presented it and I asked if there's any questions. And there's no questions. So, you know, me being proud of myself, like I am lots of times when I work on something for a long time, I'm like, man, I nailed it. <laughs> and so they all walked out of the room and I'm feeling like, yep, everybody's aligned with what we got going on. Everybody's going to be behind us as we move forward. And my incident commander, um, love her to death. Her name's B. And she looked at me and she said, they didn't understand a word you said. I was like, wow. And that it was a very humbling moment. And, you know, a few things I learned from that, that I, I'm sure I've had to relearn them a few times since then, about 10 years ago, but was that you can present something and you can have this whole narrative that you can go on. But if people don't understand what you're saying, then it, it it's meaningless. It can be the coolest words together. Basically in a fireway, it was the same as people saying, hey, we're going to do the right things for the right reasons. And we're going to make sure that we focus on the, it, those words don't mean much. And neither did mine, even though I thought they had meaning because I didn't communicate any of that meaning. So. Well, this is why storytelling is so important, right? right. <clears throat> is, is it doesn't matter how good your analysis is. It doesn't matter how penetrating the insights that you find are. It doesn't matter how great your strategy is. If you can't communicate it to people in a way that they not only can understand it, but they can connect with it, they can resonate with it, then you've lost you, you've lost the opportunity. And and it's like you know I this this goes back to caveman days, right? I mean, you think about this. Back in back back when we were all you know walking around as hunters and gatherers, you know if you if you had said to people, look, there's a there's a bunch of brilliant red berries over there. We shouldn't eat them; they're poisonous. Most people would have quickly forgotten that and eaten the red berries and, and died. But you know if you were the the chief and you said, hey, everybody, everybody remember Grug? Grug was such a great guy. We all loved Grug. He entertained us so much. And here's, 
here's poor Groog's wife and, and child sitting here around the fire with us today. Where's Groog? Well, well, Groog ate the red berries. And now Groog is gone. Don't be like Groog. Don't leave your 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 wife and, and child here uh, without you. Don't eat the red berries. Now that sticks with people because now every time everyone looks at the red berries, they're thinking about poor Groog. Yeah, and I was just thinking to follow on from that as well. You've got to have this ability to check people's understanding as well. It's not just a matter of asking that simple question, do you get it? Because you're going to get those head bobbing, oh yeah, we understand, and they don't. Because nobody also wants to put their hand up and be that that guy in the room who thinks that everyone else gets it except them. You know, the old, there's never a stupid question, but people always feel that, and therefore they don't want to ask that question. And therefore everybody walks out of the room, and you know that half of them haven't understood it. But it's having that capability to explicit ex- extract that information from them to make sure that what you've conveyed has been understood. And as Bryce said, if you do it in a story, it's relatable. But then also having that ability to check and engage them to make sure they know what they're going to be doing and understand what the intent is from that commander's intent and the mission intent from the beginning. The arc of my career, kind of the pulling threads are really around how do we quickly bring innovation? How do we break through the bureaucracy? How do we deliver that minimum viable bureaucracy to get innovation? (laughs) I love that. Minimum viable bureaucracy. Wow. (laughs) That is like that. That should be the goal of every organization to develop minimum viable bureaucracy. And and that's it. You know, it's like and that's what I try to teach all my teams that I've ever led, you know, whether it's in the Air Force and even now. And I've got the opportunity, the unique privilege of being in the kind of the enterprise strategy side of the house and working with global teams all over the place that are saying, we know what we can do, you know, and you and Marcus talk about this. Marcus talks about this a lot and, and, and on his thread of conversations is it's in your team. Help us unlock it. Right. And so I've had that privilege of being able to work with these teams and say, here, here's kind of the, here's some playbook. Here's some tools that you can think about to help you break through that kind of bureaucracy. You have the solution. Our consumers want those solutions. How do you close the gap and find that minimum viable bureaucracy to go from supply to just giving giving consumers what they're looking for? So that's kind of been the arc of my career and that whole big things fast. That's where I was born. Uh, I was born very early in the military because we had to deliver big things fast. And the risk profile Mm -hmm. is such that if I didn't deliver something fast, there was lives at stake because it was a security system. Now, in consumer packaged goods, the risk is different. It's still very much we have to manage supply chain and innovation programs and all that to get consumers the products that they want. Uh, we saw this a lot come to life, especially in the paper business, right, A couple over the course of COVID. Can you talk a little bit about, just for people who don't know, what, what are some of Kimberly Clark's brands? Because I, I, I think of Kimberly Clark as one of the biggest companies that people know all the products but may not know the company itself. No, it's great. Yeah, so we're globally headquartered here in Dallas, Texas. Uh, when we've got kind of, and then North America is run out of the, you know, Wisconsin and Chicago, kind of the Midwest. Um, the biggest brands you know about are Huggies, Kotex, Poise. Uh, on the paper side, you have Kleenex, you have Cottonelle, things like that. And so that's what we're known for. We have Scott, Scott Tissue as well. And so these are big, big global brands that have number one or number two position globally. And from a market share perspective, we're very proud of that. But all CPGs struggle with the same concept, with the same issues, right? Which is how do you go to market quickly with meaningfully differentiated products that consumers care about? And as you said, you know, a key to that is is something that I I saw during my my time as a journalist in every company that I covered that the answers that companies need 
reside in those organizations. 100% of the time, I've never seen a company that there weren't people in the organization who knew the secret sauce, who knew what needed to be done, but that it's it's the bureaucracy, it's the hierarchy, it's the complacency in some cases that holds that back, that keeps those good ideas from being surfaced. And so this idea that you you put out of, of creating this minimum viable bureaucracy that is is lean and and thin in the sense that it doesn't create this this barrier this layer of permafrost between the people who are doing the work the people at the coalface and senior leadership and that's what i find exists too often in organizations is this this kind of permafrost layer that insulates the top of the house from from the people who know what's going on and know how what needs to happen to move forward and so if you could thaw that if you can reduce that to a permeable membrane yeah, right. Then you have a great flow of ideas up and down the organization. No, that's exactly right. It's how do you find what is that that minimum viable is how quickly can we do that? And it's and it's really about managing through the risks and getting leaders enrolled, right? And you know, there's a couple of different frameworks out there uh, from from you know, lots of consultancies and also from like the pro side change management. That's another, you know, there's a lot of different frameworks and tech and methods that are out there that help you think through what is the stakeholder engagement map? You know, bank consulting calls it the sponsorship spine back in the military. What do we used to call it? The chain of command. Yeah. You know, and so, but you can't say chain of command in the commercial world. Cause sometimes I get that kind of makes people, uh, put up their barriers in terms of like a oh, command and you're going to command me. It's like, no, we're not commanding. You're just, but there's a flow of leadership of a, on a chain of commitment, if you will, mm-hmm. of stakeholders, impacted audiences that you have to think through. And oftentimes we just start piling it on. And that's where you start getting from, here's the minimum viable of impacted audience that we need to really work through. And then we start adding more layers and more layers and the permafrost gets thicker and thicker, and thicker and thicker, as opposed to saying, this is the minimum that we need to move. And we're going to move at the speed of trust. You have to trust that this layer, these individuals, whether they're whether it's five or ten or some kind of whatever number you determine, are empowered to actually execute this particular project, platform, innovation. But you have to allow that speed of trust to work its way through to so keep that layer thin. That is so critical, and, and that trust—it's a two-way street. That trust is is comes from senior leadership trusting their teams. But it also comes from knowing that their teams have the skills and the capabilities they need to be able to make good decisions, to make to be able to make good choices at the coalface so that you can trust them, right? It's it's exactly right. It's about capability as well as confidence. And that I found as well, that, that has to be a default setting. You have to trust people by default. You know, in, in this day and age where we're fast moving bringing these quality people in, you know, you hope you're going to recruit the quality that you need. And then as you've done, Jose, you, know, you enable these people, you trust them to get on with what you've brought them in for while providing that leadership, that coaching support mechanism through that spine as it goes up and down and more often getting them to foster the trust in you. You know, you implicitly trust them because you know why you brought them in. And often the hard, hard thing to do is for the frontline operators is to trust their leadership spine because of probably the scarring that they may have had. And I think it's fascinating that where you are now, just from your quick journey you counted through with us, you were doing this as a 20-year-old 
young guy in the military, yeah. you know, so you saw those problems and, and I was the same. I, I saw those behaviors that impacted my capability to be as good as I could be. And therefore I've always vowed never to be like that as I've climbed up the greasy pole, if you will, to make sure that those below me were always protected. You know, my spine was sort of overarching them yeah. to protect them from above and keep pulling up as I climbed up the ladder as well. So I think it's fascinating to talk about this, as you say, this, distrust the speed of trust because the more we trust the faster we can go and that's why it's the baseline for Lencioni's five dysfunctions of a team you know trust first that's right. followed by healthy conflict and and it goes upwards yeah that was that probably the most formative uh, you mentioned like you know trusting in your team and for me the thing that I've always held on to you know formative experience was very again back in the the very first role project management kind of big program that I was running was that the operators in the field were giving us feedback in terms of how to fix this particular uh, charging station that we were having. We had a tactical remote security system. And we were hearing from the 18, 19 year olds in the field that were out in Southwest Asia, you know, that were out in the desert. And they were telling us, this is the problem that you're facing. But back at headquarters, we were doing design thinking. We're doing all this engineering, all this. Yeah, we were reflecting with 10,000 pound brain geniuses and PhDs. And, well, let's figure out this technology. And what if we do this? And then it hit me. I'm like, let's listen to the operator. What do they actually want versus what we're trying just, to design Just stop for. doing that. Just stop. Yeah. I'm like, just again. Nobody does that. <laughs> what's the problem to be solved? The yeah. problem to be solved is this particular problem. We are creating this entire, uh, I guess, e I don't even know what the right word is, ecosystem of problems that were attached to this one singular insight. Strip away all that. What is the operator saying? They just need this rechargeable battery to do this thing. And the problem is that sand is getting into the compartment. Solve for sand getting the compartment don't go out and explore the latest greatest battery <laughs> the problem is sand is getting into how about we just stop that you know because they would you know what they were doing what the operators were doing they were opening them up dusting them out or putting an index card so sand wouldn't come into the system i'm like yeah. again you know so that's kind of that's always for me that's always that was the crystallizing moment that i thought our operators want x how do we quickly give them x and just minimize that bureaucracy in between what we want and what they're and what they what we can give them and what they want that applies with consumers as well in the CPG space. What they want is super absorb. They want absorbent care products that are high quality, that's safe for their families at a reasonable price. Great, simplify just really simple first principles. Right? How do we do that? We, we enable our teams. We teach our teams. I think you mentioned a really big component. Continuously, persistently build the capabilities of our teams so they know how to remove. The bureaucracy so that they're delivering best-in-class products to our consumers you know i'd probably dedicate just off the top of my head maybe an hour maybe an hour and a half a day just to learn it at wow. least every day good for you yeah um now i enjoy it but i also have to now part of that is it takes you down a path of exploring capabilities that will help me achieve my mission for want of a better way of putting it now, there's lots of people out there that can do cybersecurity and have the technical skills. That's not where I've sought to enhance my own capabilities, because why would I do that? I hire people to do that, and I surround myself with people who are better than me at doing it. Right. So my job is to create the context for them to succeed and to architect systems 
and I'm not talking about technical systems here, architect systems that deliver the outcomes that we want. So I deliberately sought to inform myself and educate myself around things that I think will help me in, in those areas. There's another reason for it as well, which is those skills are going to stay with you forever. Technology ebbs and wanes. It comes and it goes, you know, in, in, in terms of how it evolves. So I think that process has taken me, I hate the phrase, but I'm going to use it, on a journey. It has taken me, you know, on that evolution of my own thinking to realising that there's actually a bit of a separation between what my vision is and what my teams are actually doing on a day-to-day -day basis. And there's a disconnect there. So how do I connect those two elements, the tactical element and the strategic thinking, so that the tactical side is delivering the strategic intent? How do I do that? How do I move that forward without falling into the trap of dictating to people better at their job than me as to how to do their job? So I think that that's the kind of, the thinking process that I've gone through over quite a few years. Now, that, that, at the same time, that is within an industry that is changing at a pace that you just would not believe. You know, the, 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 the change is astronomical, even if it's down to the fact of our understanding of to how bad actors act. You know, that's going through the roof. There are a number of cloud service providers that have big data Again, you know, another fairly meaningless phrase in its own right, but we understand what we mean. Sure. That have large amounts of data that can be analyzed for patterns. And when we do do that, we start to see that there are patterns. It's not all unknown and, and all um, a bit of, you know, witchcraft and so on and so forth. It's actually there are patterns in there that can be identified. So those things change and we need to move our people who are working at the coalface to enable them to meet the strategic vision while still doing their job, whilst using all that information. So that takes us to a place which is, okay, the old way of centralized control of maybe some participation, but also quite a bit of diktat as to how things should be. Maybe the way we measure things is another kind of constraint on people's ability to do things. Maybe we've got to change this because what we're seeking is much more of a kind of hierarchical organization. And we, we structured in this way. So I have accountability as the exec, but we have a distributed model within the company where there is shared responsibility for execution, but design strategy and you know, accountability sits with me. So what that helps us to do is to ensure that people working at the coalface are the actual people doing, doing the work and, and helping to design things and doing what is uh, appropriate within the context of what they're doing. But then to ensure that we we are drawing staff into the strategic intent through different tools and techniques, which I know we'll go on and talk about, to understand and challenge both the strategy and the means by which we deliver it. Now, that achieves a number of different things. One, it's about communication. So it helps me to, to communicate the strategy. Two, it's about feedback, more eyes on it from more different perspectives and more things. That's important. And that requires me to be open to significant challenge, which is sometimes difficult, yep. you've got to be open to it. Not only have you got to be open to it, you've got to be prepared to act on what, what Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, because if you're not if you're not going to act on it, you're not open to it. You know. If you're not if gonna you're not if you're not gonna act, act on it, you're, you're you're better off not even asking. 
You know, that's that's the thing is that is that yes. we see a lot where organizations say, leaders say, we want to hear from our employees. Tell us what we could be doing better. And then there's it's 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 like crickets. You know, it's it's like, I, I, you know, I worked with one company in the past where they put up a website on their Internet saying, tell us how we can do better. They got thousands of responses. And they didn't respond to a single one and they didn't they didn't even they didn't even repeat back what they'd heard. And so instead of helping the situation, it actually undermines it, it makes it worse. Infuriates people. It's a really interesting point that you raise that as well, is because it, it, it immediately raises in my mind, on top of all the things that you've said, the way that you ask the question and the way that you structure it is vitally important to be able to get something that is usable back. If you just ask the question, how can we do it better? I think you you might well be challenged in terms of being able to respond positively and what comes. I think it's essential to structure, you know, these questions uh, in a way that gets openness, honesty, but also gives you feedback in a way that is, is usable. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. We often say, you know, you, you need to stop providing answers as a leader and start asking better questions. As you said, it's how those questions are structured that prompt people to think, to stop and actually consider what it is you're asking and the way you're asking it and why you're asking. And I just wrote down a few things as you're talking then. And, you know, you, you're saying this struggle with being directive or not in the, in the position. And we speak about, you know, keeping your hand on the tiller and when do you let go and let the crew take the ship and when do you have to grab hold tight? And I loved how you talked about how you see your role as having to architect the system. Because it's exactly what it, this system of the complex moving parts that within that of which the majority are people, and it's I love how you see your role as the leader of of that is the architect of that is enabling that system to function by linking strategic vision to the coal face, bringing clarity to those doing the work who do it far better than you ever could, so you come hands off, but you're enabling and almost curating this environment for those people to function and bring their A game. hundred percent. And I think that it, I see my job just to take it a step further. My job is to create that system that helps the organization to consistently make good decisions. Love yep. that. that. That's the way I, that's what I tell myself every single day. Literally that it's not, I haven't just made it up. It's not a buzz phrase. I tell myself that that is what is your, your desire is. It's not you making the decision. It's the decision being made within the organization at the right level that's appropriate. So that could be at a tactical level, an operational level or a strategic level. And yes, I do think in those terms. And I know it's quite militaristic, but it just helps me to think, to think like that. But it's also about pushing that to your own leaders. So in most organizations, there is depth to, to, to leadership. Right. So it's all very well me saying this, but I need my leaders, my direct report to live and breathe this as well. So... You have to be very clear with people. This is the way it is. This is the way it's going to be. You know, get on board or maybe we need a discussion because you can't have somebody that undermines this because it will simply undermine the whole thing if one of your leaders is not attuned to what you're trying to do and your staff will feel that and they will hear it and they will respond in all likelihood in the negative to it as well. You won't get what you want. So you have to get your own leaders on, on board, then you have to create the structure and ensure that they're clear that their job is to create an environment that 
the teams can deliver their outcomes effectively. So it's people focused, you know, it's intent based leadership, values based leadership, servant based leadership, all of those things. It's not one thing. When I hear people talking about, oh, one thing's out of favor and another one's, it's all rubbish. It's kind of, they're all the toolbox and they're all to be used in context, you know, like, like all tools really. But you need to see all those three different levels of leadership. And if you can get to that point, then you've got a chance of designing that system to achieve your goal, which is good decision-making continuously. Thank you for listening to the Thinking Leader podcast, sponsored by Red Team Thinking. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast so that you don't miss the next idea-filled episode. Also, check out Bryce and Marcus's YouTube channel, Red Team TV. There you'll find video of today's podcast as well as previous episodes. And don't forget to visit redteamthinking.com to learn more about Red Team Thinking work and Marcus and Bryce's upcoming online courses. While you're there, take our free quiz to find out how you rate as a Red Team Thinker and if your organisation has a Red Team culture. Because who thinks wins? <laughs>